as the words behind me remind us, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and abides forever, so let us give our attention, undivided attention, to the reading of it. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now turn with me, if you will, to our main passage, Psalm 96. Again, if you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 499, Psalm 96. So we'll read the entire psalm. Again, this is our God's Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, and tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us, uh, before we jump in, ask his blessing on our time in it. Heavenly Father, eternal God. You have told us that all flesh is like the grass. It's breath and then it's gone. But in our hands we hold something that was around long before us and will be around long after us. Something that is eternal. Your word, it abides forever. And so we ask that you would grant to us that we might give it our undivided attention. That we would be receptive to all that it has to say. And that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, who is the word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Someone uh, 
whose name rhymes with Sarah Montes, recently reminded me uh, of what Stephen Roberts used to say, Chappie, uh, when he was here, that he'd often remind us that everyone is really looking for three things. Um, an identity, a, a, an understanding of who they are, uh, that they matter, and why they matter. Uh, but not just an identity. People are looking for community. They want to belong to something bigger than themselves. Uh, they want to be connected to others in a meaningful and a deep way. Uh, and that they want meaning. They want identity, community, and meaning. They, they need to understand where meaning and purpose in life are found. Uh, why we're here. What makes life worth living. Where we are headed. Where this all ends. Everybody is looking for identity, community, and meaning or purpose. They're at the very, these questions are at the very core of who we are. And everyone is trying to answer them in some way. And ultimately, everyone has their answer. But not all answers are correct, and therefore not all answers are satisfying. Psalm 96, our psalm this morning, gets at these answers. But it does so uh, without surprise in a context. We looked last week at Psalm 95, which called us to worship God because he is the creator and because he is the redeemer. And it described uh, redemption, salvation, as a work of new creation. And today, Psalm 96 uh, identifies and describes the song of God's new creation, what it calls a, a new song. Uh, a new song does not simply mean uh, we've sung all the old ones. Could somebody please write something new? We're bored. That is not what the Bible means when it says sing a new song. Uh, it's not an answer to boredom. Uh, this phrase, new song, it shows up only nine times in the Bible. In Revelation 4 and 5, make it clear that there's a first song, which is a song of creation. And then there's a new song, which is a song of redemption. Uh, the new song is for those who have experienced God's mercy and his forgiveness. Who have discovered the truth about who they are, where they belong, and why they were created. That's what the new song is. Uh, Psalm 95 last week warned us that there was no place where we can run from God. He is everywhere. He will judge all people. He is king and he is judge over all. The entire earth. The entire universe. You can't escape by getting on with Elon Musk and going to Mars. Psalm 96 picks up on that with the declaration that this God, this king, this judge offers salvation, forgiveness, and mercy to all who would come to him. And so really my main point as we look at this psalm this morning is this. 
having invited all people to come to him for redemption, God calls those who do come to sing a song about his salvation and to tell others to come as well. This is a song of evangelism. This is a song of hope. This is a song of forgiveness. And it belongs to us. And it is, it is our duty not just to sing it, but to invite others to come and sing it with us. So that's where we're heading. To do that, I just have three uh, main points. The first is the new song is a song of victory for the king who is exalted above all other gods. The new song is a gracious invitation uh, for the nations to come and to join themselves to the king of heaven and to his people. And the new song is a song for us to sing to the lamb in gratitude and praise for his salvation. So that's where we're headed uh, this morning. So that first point, it's a song of victory uh, for the king. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting. Psalm 96 is one of three psalms that were sung when David first brought the ark into Jerusalem and put it uh, into the uh, the tabernacle where it would remain until the temple was built and then stay in Jerusalem. And that's uh, recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 16. But the chapters of 1 Chronicles leading up to that talk about this uh, years-long journey for it to get there and how this is a a joyous conclusion to that journey. It really kind of starts in many ways back in chapter 10 where we read about the death of King Saul uh, who had persecuted David and had tried to kill him and then pursued him. Uh, David then becomes king uh, and starts to put all things in Israel in order. And then in chapter 13, he decided to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. And he tried, but you might remember along the way, uh, the ark tipped, the cart that it was on tipped, and Uzzah, poor guy, reached out to steady the ark and dropped dead because he touched the ark that was holy when he had been told, no one shall touch the ark. And David got mad, he got grumpy, uh, he got discouraged, and he decided not to bring it to Jerusalem, and so it stayed uh, for a long time in in the home of a man named Obed-Edom, and David turned his attention instead to building his own palace. And then a report came that uh, the, the land and the, the farm, uh, the fields of this man, Obed-Edom, who had the ark, were just bursting and being blessed. And David said, okay, maybe it's time to bring the ark up to Jerusalem so Israel can be blessed. And so finally, in First Chronicles 15, the ark is brought up to Jerusalem. And then chapter 16 records the, the event. The singing, the praising, the, the offering of sacrifices. And they sing Psalm 96, our psalm. And as they do, they confess what this song confesses. Verse 10, they confess, the Lord reigns. In other words, the bringing of the ark, all of this blessing on Israel, isn't about David and his reign and his rule It's not about his victories over the Philistines or other nations or or even over Saul. It is about God's victories over all the other gods whom those nations represent. He is the great God and he is the great king. 
And that really becomes clear in, in the first six verses of Psalm 96. It says this, things like this. Declare glory among the nations, verse 3. Our God is to be feared above all gods, for they are nothing but worthless idols, verses 4 and 5. And it says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his. They fill his house. The psalm confesses that God is greater than the gods, the false gods, the idols of the nations. There is none like him. He alone reigns. But the song doesn't stop there. The, the last four verses of this psalm call the people of all the nations to understand who he is and that they will face him in judgment and he will judge them with equity. Now I know that this word has fallen on hard times in our day and it has been redefined uh, in popular language to mean equality of outcome, that everybody gets the same thing. That is not what this psalm is saying. That's not what that word means. The word means impartiality. God will judge all people with simple justice, having no regard for their nationality, their gender, their bank account, what family they came from, what connections they have. They will stand before him and the standard will be simple. Here is my law. How have you done? 100% or fail. Have you kept it perfectly? And so the announcement in verse 13 that the Lord is coming to judge the earth in righteousness brings this psalm to a conclusion. It's announcing he's not just the judge of Israel. His authority doesn't stop at Israel's borders. He is the the judge of the whole world. All must face him. All must answer to him. That's what it means when it says he reigns. His, His exaltation is above all other gods. And that leads to the reality that he will judge the whole world. That's how the psalm opens and ends. But it's not the main point of the psalm. It's the context in which the main point is delivered. The warnings at the beginning and at the end of the psalm are are meant to drive us to the center where we find an invitation to all the nations to come and enter into God's house. In the psalm, in the center verses, in verses 7 through 9, God invites Gentiles to join Israel in entering into the tabernacle and to worship the true God in the splendor of his holy presence. But we can't skip over verse 8 and that call there for them to come and as they do, to bring an offering. After all, why the warnings of judgment at the beginning and the end of the psalm? Why is God reminding all the peoples about his rule, his justice, and his coming judgment? It's because they, like we, are sinners. 
At the entrance to God's house, guards were stationed to keep anyone who was sinful from entering in without first dealing with their sin. And so the first thing Israel would always do in worship as they approached God's presence, they'd they'd come up in singing, and as they got to God's house, as they got to the tabernacle and later the temple, the first thing they would do is offer a sacrifice. Because sin deserves death. And so the only thing that can pay the debt owed is the offering of a life. And it was either going to be your life or the life of a substitute. The shedding of blood is the price of entering into God's presence. Now, obviously today, we don't have to do that anymore because Jesus Christ, His blood, is our entrance. But this is why every time we enter into God's presence, we acknowledge our sin, we confess it, and we plead the blood of Jesus. We do the same thing still. We bring a sacrifice as we come. Again, this is one of three psalms sung as the ark is placed in the tabernacle when it came to Jerusalem. And and the ark is important in the life of Israel because it's where God promised to meet with his people. When, When he commanded its construction in Exodus, he said, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. Uh, so the, the, tabernacle, uh, the, the ark is a box, has a lid with angels on it, and that lid is called the mercy seat. Below that lid inside the box are the Ten Commandments, God's perfect law, the standard by which we are to be judged. God is above meeting with his people. And between the two is the mercy seat, where the blood of the sacrifice is poured out to atone for our sin. How do we get through that law to the holy God? And the only answer is the blood of a sacrifice who bears our punishment in our place. That's the only hope. God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. And that's ever present before the Israelites. By the time David set up the tabernacle in Jerusalem, this imagery was familiar and it was well known. There's no surprise that God is saying, bring an offering as you come into my courts. What's shocking in the psalm is not that he says, bring a sacrifice as you come, but that he directs that command toward the nations, towards the Gentiles, verse 7. God is inviting, as his house is set up and his ark is placed inside it, he is inviting non-Jews to come and be a part of his family, his kingdom. He's inviting them to find their identity in belonging to the one true God. So that when people say to them, who are you? They would respond, I am a child of God. I am a citizen of heaven. 
He's calling them to find their sense of community in something deeper than their ethnicity, their nationality, their culture, their language, their wealth, but to find their sense of community in being those who have received the mercy and the forgiveness of the God who created them. That their commonality would be found and that they humbled themselves and confessed their need for a savior and they embraced the God of mercy and love. Such community, it it transcends uh, political and ethnic boundaries. It even transcends the grave and it unites all those in every age who have called upon God for his salvation. And as we saw last week, it's a call to understand and embrace your created purpose. The quest for meaning is really a quest to understand why. Why we exist, where we're headed, what makes life worth living. And the only one who can answer that question is the one who made you for a purpose. Meaning can only be found as you come and you surrender yourself to the one who made you and receive his answers and his calling. And so God's invitation in verses 7 through 9 are an invitation to people in every tribe and nation and land to come and find everything their hearts long for. An identity, a community, a purpose and meaning. And it's not just an invitation for the Jews, but to their earthly enemies as well. It's an invitation to every tribe and tongue. Come, come and know his grace. And to some that might sound scandalous. Lord, how dare you invite the Philistines, the Hittites, the Egyptians of all people. But it shouldn't sound scandalous. Because it's what God has been saying all along. God said he would bless the Jews first, not the Jews only. He said it to Noah. He said it to Abraham. Pastor Isaac, without planning, got into this in Sunday school this morning. The descendants of Abraham were always meant to take God's offer of mercy and forgiveness and declare it to all who would trust in him. Regardless of what nation, what land, what people they belong to. The plan was always for them to dwell together in one house as one family, God's family. Salvation, which ultimately takes hold of the new heavens and the new earth, what we call the new creation, was always meant for peoples from all lands. And so it should be no surprise that every time this phrase, a new song, shows up in Scripture, this song of redemption of the new creation, every time it comes up includes a reference to the Gentiles. Seven times in the Old Testament and twice in the New. So as the Bible draws to a close in the book of Revelation, we're given a glimpse Uh, of what worship before the throne of God and the new creation looks like. It's a vision that includes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. 
And we're told in chapter 5, verse 9 of Revelation, that they sang a new song. We heard that in our call to worship this morning. Chapter 14 of Revelation will tell us that it is a song that only those who know what it means to be a child of God can learn. And it's a song for us to sing to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ who died for us. A chapter earlier in Revelation 4, the people sing an old song. It's the song of creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For you made all things, and by you all things were created. It's a song of creation. It's a beautiful song. It's a good song, and we will sing it in heaven. But it's incomplete. It's the beginning of the story, but not the end of the story. It's a song to the creator, praising him for glory, uh, the glory of his creation. Uh, it's giving him the honor due to him for that work. It's, it's beautiful, it's good, but it's incomplete. And so in chapter 4, there is no amen. There's no conclusion. Because something more is needed. And so as we roll into chapter 5 of Revelation... We hear about God's mercy, his love, and his forgiveness. And how they must be known and they must be praised. And so in that chapter, they turn their focus to the Lamb of God, to Jesus Christ who came into this world to offer himself as the offering, as the sacrifice that would give us entrance into the eternal heavenly tabernacle, temple, house of God. And they sing to him, we're told, a new song. A song of new creation, a song of redemption, a song of salvation. They sing, worthy are you, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed your people, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But listen to how the song goes on. It it keeps going. It says, you have made them a kingdom. In other words, you've given them a new identity. They are not defined by their birth, their nationality, their skin color, their language, their wealth, or anything else. They're defined by the fact that they are citizens of your kingdom. They are citizens of heaven. But they've also been made priests, which means that they they now live in God's house. They're a part of his family, which means they now have a community. They belong to his family. But they also have a purpose. That song goes on, and they shall reign forever and ever. They have a destiny. They're headed somewhere. It's to be a part of God's eternal reign in his new heavens and his new earth. The song continues with more praise for Jesus for all he has done. And then it includes what chapter 4 had lacked, an amen. Because this is the end. This, This is the goal. This is where everything is headed. This is what God has been planning since creation. This is a glimpse into what our eternal praise will be when we, were, when we are with our God in heaven. 
This is the end goal that God proclaimed in Psalm 96 and has been working toward for thousands of years. But it all hinges upon Jesus' willingness to come into this world and redeem us by his blood. Everything that pertains to salvation depends on that. His is the blood that must be poured on the mercy seat. His is the only blood that can answer for our sins. The only way for him to call a people from every land is to come and die in our place. Then we can belong to his family. And so it should be no surprise that that after he had done that, after he came into this world and, and offered up his life as that sacrifice that Psalm 96 anticipates, should be no surprise that, that when he rose and prepared to return to heaven, his final words to his disciples were, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the king and I reign. He says, go therefore, announce my reign to the world. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved, and he will judge the peoples with equity. And then Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, invite them into my courts. Teach the families of the earth what it means to be a part of my family teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And then he concludes, he says, and behold, I am with you always. Here's the promise that their faith is not in vain. The Lord is faithful and he will never abandon those who put their trust in him. This is what Jesus is accomplishing through us, his church. And every time we sing about his glorious salvation, we sing a new song and we proclaim his mercy to the world. And we invite them to learn who they were truly meant to be. We invite them to learn what it means to be a part of his family, the community of the redeemed. And we announce to them that there is meaning, there is purpose. It's to know and to to love the God who made you. And to even spend your eternity with him. When the last soul is saved, his work will be complete. And he'll he'll bring those who remain to to join those who have preceded him into his eternal rest. And there we will know only joy and only contentment. And there we will perfectly understand who we are and where meaning is found and nothing else will delight us more. And every week... We taste of that 
when we gather together as his people in his house and we sing his praises. We sing songs like holy, holy, holy songs of creation. And we sing songs about redemption. Most of us are Gentiles living fulfillment of what God proclaimed in Psalm 96. That people from all the nations would be compelled to enter into his house and dwell in his glory. And as we gather, we sing those songs about what Jesus has done. Our songs have a thousand titles and different lyrics, but every time we sing about his salvation, we sing a new song. But we don't just sing. We also come to his table where the bread and the wine remind us of the price he paid to give us entrance into his house. The offering he made to bring us in. And so we come to his table and as we do, we find the very three things we long for. We, we are reminded that we are in him and he is in us. And that's our identity. It's who we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh as we share one loaf we're reminded of the verse that is just above the stairs that though we are many we share in one loaf and therefore we are members one of another we have a community and as we remember his death and his resurrection we remember our purpose that we were made to share both in his suffering and in his glory. That's where we're headed. That's what it's all about. And so we get to come as the the community of the redeemed, as children of God, as citizens of heaven, and to remember these things and confess these things and enjoy these things. And so I would like to ask uh, Pastor Isaac and our elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Lord, we bless your name. And we long to declare your glory to the nations. For you have done marvelous things among the peoples. And you are great and greatly to be praised. All other gods are are worthless idols. But you made all things and all must answer to you. And so we praise you. That Jesus has made a way into your house by offering himself and redeeming us through his blood. So we ask that you would teach us to sing about your redemption, the song that we will sing for all eternity in the new creation. Teach us to sing a new song. And we pray that you might use our praise to call many to faith in Jesus Christ, to finally understand who they are, where community is found, and why they were created for your glory and to enjoy you for all eternity. Amen.